Bhutasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambhutasa Namo Tasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambhutasa Namo Tasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambhutasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami My respects to Lumpur, Suchito, and the Venerables, all the Venerables, and to all of you. Uh, this is a time when, for many of you, the some of the hindrances are falling away softly, and there's more settledness and clarity can you hear? I noticed a lot of people have moved to the chairs. <laughs> but still there's a jungle to clear. And, and as is often said, this path is exceedingly long. But however long it is, Ajahn Chah said, um, whether it takes one lifetime or many lifetimes, it doesn't matter how long it takes. We just don't give up. Just keep going. And this is very important. It's certainly been very important for me over the years. And this realm is to be expected that there will be suffering and non-suffering and it's just that mixture that is our teacher and having brought that to mind I'd like to take this opportunity to make some dedications it's very useful uh, when we're caught up with our own particular aches, pains or dukkha of the mind, suffering of the mind, to connect with um, ancestors, long lost relatives, recently lost loved ones, those we know that are in uh, crisis physically, mentally, emotionally, uh, those who are seriously ill and that we are close to, these are things for us to contemplate because we are very connected. And when we're practicing here, sometimes it's easy to lose the wider perspective. So in particular, I want to dedicate the goodness of our practice to Karuna, 15 years old, in Ottawa, and she's really struggling, and to Roberta, who's uh, struggling with lung cancer, and to Jamesina, elderly, can't 
quite manage on her own anymore. Many of you have seen this happen to your own parents. What to do, how to help, how to manage when old age sickness and uh, the dying process begin or continue. Uh, We ourselves are headed in that direction, but if we can remember to dedicate our practice, it's helped me many times just to remember the hands that feed us as monastics. So many hands come together to feed us. And sometimes when the path seems uh, unclear or there are difficult decisions to make in the monastery or uh, things are coming up for members of the community and very often uh, the container can be very hot. So it's good to remember the kindness and the support that we receive and not just get caught up with the dukkha. So in contemplating the suffering of, of our friends or the loss of our loved, loved ones, we also can remember the goodness of their lives and how they've touched us. And continuing our practice out of a sense of connection and gratitude and uh, making these dedications. If there is in some mysterious way, inexplicably, if some of this goodness gets transmitted in their direction, and if, if they benefit, if anyone benefits, if even the moth flying around this room benefits, then we are not wasting our efforts. And we couldn't be wasting our efforts. In fact, even if we think we are, The kamma of the body is that it starts out maybe in good shape and eventually degenerates. And this can be a source of grief or suffering for us. Or the mind starts out in good shape and starts to degenerate and this can be a source of worry and confusion for us. Or the heart starts out strong and confident And as we pass through various crises in life, we can get discouraged and burdened and scared, worried, etc. And this can be an impediment for us. But when we find the Dhamma, if we can take refuge in the path, there is always something we can do with these obstacles and impediments, as terrible as they may feel. The return to refuge is the key. Rather than focusing on the dukkha itself as something personal, but trying to uh, gain more perspective and see the kamma. This is like shaking, whether it's trembling of the heart or trembling of the body whether we have uh, little dukkha or a lot of dukkha, whether other people seem to be doing really well and we, we feel hopeless. These are just our thoughts, our, our ways of interpreting 
what we've been offered, what we've been given. But another way to hold that is to see these are spiritual tests. They're like maras, different kinds of maras there to trick us into believing that we can't walk this path or we can't do this practice, we can't really fulfill it. And if we believe that, then that little thought that goes in the direction of chewing on the Mara or nodding to Mara is exactly what we need to change our habit from going in that direction. It's very subtle and it's, it's easy to do it, but to remember to do it is not easy because we've almost been trained to be friends with Mara. And the world is constantly, tirelessly, it's like a conspiracy to draw us away from the Dhamma. There are so many forms that Mara takes, beautiful forms and beautiful sounds, beautiful smells, beautiful tastes, beautiful touch sensations and experiences, beautiful places to go, beautiful conversations to have. But at some point we see the futility in that and we understand the dead end that it all leads to. Then, if we have enough wisdom to return to that which truly supports us, we begin to taste a little bit of strength, a little bit of clarity, a joy, a peace that is not dependent on some kind of sensory experience. And it's, it's very pure and it gives us a feeling of great contentment. If none of us had ever experienced this before, we wouldn't have come back here to practice together and to cultivate the path in this way. So when there is discouragement or when our frailty comes looming in front of us and looks bigger than it actually is, sure, it's hard to remember, but as soon as we remember the path, as soon as we remember our true refuge, then we can take another breath, another step, We have wings, suddenly. It's much easier for us to do this, of course, when we're sitting together in these excellent conditions. The temperature is being adjusted throughout the day. The lights come on and off. The blinds go up and down. The food gets cooked. The dishes get washed. There's so many hands contributing to all this, but it seems almost like a perfectly orchestrated, like a symphony, like the the carpet holding us up, magic carpet holding us up so that we can float towards Nibbana. In fact, there is so much behind the scenes. And, And then... As these conditions 
uh, help us to develop our practice, there also are clocks ticking or the calendar days being ticked off. And quite soon we are faced with the doors opening and we have to go back towards the, the world that we came from. The normal world. <laughs> Not the normal world. This is really normal, I guess. <laughs> when I was in my early 20s, I went to India and I studied with an Advaita master. He told me that the world will tell you that you're crazy, but in your heart you know that the world is crazy. The world is mad. He actually used the word mad, madness. The thing is that it's very difficult to leave the world behind. Even after doing that consciously, intentionally, and taking lifetime vows many years ago, still what we've been trained in and has educated us with its ways, the ways of the world, the worldly winds, we've been inculcated with that for so many years. So how can we just deposit that outside the gate, whether it's at the roadside of Spirit Rock or the gates of the monastery? Very difficult to leave the world behind when we're carrying it within us. No matter how hard we practice, until we reach a certain threshold of re-educating ourselves in the Dhamma, the world will continue to pursue us. As I said to some of you in one of the interviews, we actually have a debt of gratitude to the world for fooling us and trying to continue to fool us. Because if that didn't happen, if there was only pleasure in this life, we would never look for Nibbana. We would never look for freedom from suffering because there wouldn't be any. So we have to be grateful that there is disappointment in worldly things because then we start to seek in deeper ways, not in the superficial ways, for an abiding happiness that will not abandon us, that will not disappoint us. And that's how we end up coming back again and again on retreat to reinforce, to fortify that refuge so that we can continue to have an oasis within the eight worldly winds. Otherwise, it's very hard out there in the fast-paced lives that we live, making a living and trying to keep precepts, trying to be ethical, trying to practice and take refuge when very it, it's not it's becoming more mainstream but it's it's still quite rare certainly it's rare to find monastics maybe not in california but in ontario we there's only two of us and one seedling coming there's there's a lot that happens when Sangha comes together, community comes together. One of the reasons that 
I chose the name Satisaraniya for our hermitage is to remind myself of two of the most important principles of establishing refuge and holding that refuge space in in our hearts. And these are sati. Sati is the ability to remember. Uh, sati is mindfulness, but mindfulness as a way of remembering to be present, to notice, to give proper attention to the present moment, to be mindful, to keep the body and the mind in our awareness, in consciousness, and to keep coming back to that again and again in the right way, not for the sake of gain or fame or wealth or happiness on a superficial mundane level, but for the sake of freeing ourselves from what isn't true, from delusion, from ill will, from, from greed and covetousness, from the conditioned mind, from the untrained mind. Sati is the gatekeeper. Well, I don't think there's a little sati person down at the gate of Spirit Rock, but if there was, that's kind of what we have to do. I remember writing about this once, and I took it from a poem of Rumi about the guests coming and going. And those guests are what Sati observes as we watch what is entering or exiting from consciousness. Like, what what are the visitors that we get? We get all the hindrances. They don't belong to us. They're just visitors. But should we be allowing them to stay in the heart? Should we be letting them in? Sati is this very, very important gatekeeper that has a vital assistant called panya, wisdom. So sati by itself is not enough. We have to have sati panya to guard the gates of the mind. And there are a few other assistants as well. Two of them, more precisely, are hiri and otapa. Hiri and otapa traditionally are called compunction or, or having conscience, like doing something unskillful and realizing how much suffering that creates and causes for, for us and others. So it's a sense of shame, a sense of uh, feeling lost in the wilderness. How did I get into this terrible predicament? What did I do? How did I do that? How did those terrible words escape my lips? Usually this comes up with wrong speech or wrong conduct. But if we develop satipanya, right mindfulness and wisdom, like the kind of clear comprehension, sati-sampajanya, of how we're speaking, what we're saying, if it's suitable, if it's beneficial, if it's harmless, if it's kind, compassionate, well-wishing, then that's a protection. And the more we do that, the more the mind is protecting, protected. That's a true protection. 
It's, it is, it's like having a little guard down at the gate that sees, yeah, this person is a serious meditator. This person is a friend to the community. Let them come. Let them practice. This person wants to sell us um, toothpaste or, oh gosh, I've not been around for a long time, but... <laughs> what do they Oh, they um, sell some other religion. or I mean, not that that's... We would like to invite them to meditate, but they might not keep quiet. They might, you know, sometimes they're very aggressive. Um, (laughs) And then we could use loving kindness and give them a cup of tea. I used to get this when I lived in New Zealand. I had these prayer flags hanging from the balcony. All the... um, proselytizers would say there's a Buddhist nun on on the end of that street you go there so they would regularly come and knock on my door and there was that the technique sometimes of bringing a child along and it looked very innocent (laughs) and being on my own if it was a man I wouldn't let him in but if it was a woman with a child I would And then I soon came to know that they weren't at all interested in meditation. But um, kindness is a good, good practice in any case. So it takes a little bit of time to help them realize that I have my own way of working and it didn't have much to do with their way. So we part ways. But mindfulness can prevent more dangerous enemies they're not the people at the door. They're actually the visitors that lurk in our consciousness and get triggered by unpleasant experiences or by unkind things that seem to happen to us, which are the bricks and mortar of, of daily life, really. Even the Buddha was blamed and attacked and aggressed against. There's a story of when Buddha and Ananda were on alms round and people abused them in the street. And Ananda said to the Blessed One, Lord, we should not go on alms round in this town. Let's go to another town where the people won't abuse us. And the Buddha said, what if we were to go to another town and the the people would abuse us there? Then what would we do? Ananda said, Ananda said to the Lord, well, then we could go to another town. And of course, then it would be endless. And the Buddha's advice to Ananda was, we shouldn't run away from our oppressors, but we should encounter them right there and then where we meet them. And of course, this is a very important metaphor for how to deal with oppressive mind states. The inner oppressor, the inner tormentor, fear or a tiny little it looks like a very minor anger somebody we rem- we have a memory of something somebody said and suddenly in the middle of a retreat we become obsessed with it how could they a kind of righteous anger which is very hot but because we let that we tinkered with that memory 
and didn't see the harm in it. That's where the satipanya was not doing its work because we weren't paying close enough attention to this unwholesome intruder that got in. But as soon as we recognize these uh, maras disguised cleverly, we can bring the guardian of the mind there and protect ourselves. If we're really experienced at this, but we haven't yet uprooted greed or fear or anger, then these are dangerous forces to play with. And we have to be careful not to be too proud and think that our practice is so well established that we can invite anger in and give it a cup of tea. We're not there yet. So satipanya has to be sharpened. That mindfulness and sharp discernment of what is present in the mind. And the Buddha's advice is, if it's unskillful, abandon it. And if it's skillful, invite it in. And if it's already there, and it's unwholesome, then find the door and invite it out. Abandon it immediately, as harmlessly as possible. Show Mara the exit. But we cannot run away. We cannot let Mara invade our space and take up our space. Otherwise, where will we sit? We may be sitting here in the hall thinking that we're taking our rightful place, but our hearts are full of ignorance, full of delusion, full of ill will towards ourselves. Through old habitual voices like, I, I can't really do this. I can do it a little bit. Or I'm not doing as well as all the others. Or this retreat isn't as good as the last one. These are all lies. These are just Mara. Their fear, their anxiety, their aversion, their ill will towards ourselves. And we have to be very, very mindful, meticulous, and circumspect. Like, what is that voice? Is it true or not? Is it real or not? Is it, is it permanent or not? Work in these ways, but when it starts to get louder and louder, and we're biting on it to the point where we're discouraged, we can't even hold our space properly, we want to leave the retreat, then we know that that suffering is not from the conditions here. It's from the conditions within. If we have memories coming up of things that we've done that were not skillful, then instead of dwelling in regret and remorse, just acknowledging how dangerous it is to pursue wrong speech, wrong action, even wrong thinking. First and foremost, wrong thinking. Because wrong thinking is the root. If we have wrong intentions, wrong thought, that's the second limb of the path. And right view and right intention are really what give the path its breadth and its scope for us. 
So right then and there we can see this is the result of wrong, wrong view, wrong thinking, and then wrong intention taking form in our interactions with the world, with each other, with ourselves. It could even be a, a, just a gesture. Closing the door too fast on someone you don't like at work or something so subtle. How does it feel? And then when they do it to us, we get upset, forgetting that we've actually done it ourselves. But when, once we see that, and we see the danger in following unwholesome intention through body and speech, or even allowing unwholesome intention to abide in the mind once we notice it, then we start to develop otapa, which is not the fear of your belly sinking and contracting, it's the fear that gives us an, a sense of urgency, samwega, like this path has to be cultivated and this is the only life I've got. Urgently, the lights are flashing like, yes, pick up the safety, pick up the, those qualities of mind which protect us, abandon what is unwholesome and cultivate goodness, cultivate kindness, cultivate loving speech, loving acts, loving intention. To do this, we have to really face the enemy right here. The cause of our suffering looks like it's out there. It's here. How hard it is to take responsibility in that way. So when things aren't going well in the monastery, I have to sit with myself and think, how have I contributed to this? Not, it's this person, that person, it's we're not getting enough support, or we, we live in a community too far from the city, or so many, one can rationalize one's suffering in so many ways. But in the end, it's where is, where is the right intention? Where is the goodwill towards the conditions coming up? Like if there is anger or there's worry, especially we are quite isolated and we're digging new soil. We're clearing a path through a jungle in terms of monastic convention. It's unchartered territory. And a lot of critical voices coming from all sides. That stress and so many tensions, but that's not the source of the suffering. It's not because of gender, it's not because of education, it's not because of being remote, it's not because of the 20th century. It's dukkha. This is the human condition. It's been this way since the time of not just Gotama the Buddha, but every Buddha before him. And every Buddha to come, if there is only one. I don't know these things. But if we take it personally, we've lost the path. We've lost our protection. Where is satipanya? Where is right mindfulness and wisdom that can see unskillful thought, unskillful speech, and unskillful acts of mind?
take refuge, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, gratitude for Sangha. Gratitude to be able to wear the robe, walk the path, be accompanied by like-minded spiritual warriors who are willing to renounce so much to blaze this path, not just for ourselves, but for others. That's what all of us are doing. If we get caught up with our little personal stories, then we forget that we're actually putting down the paving stones for other yogis to come and practice here in this wonderful community. We're adding more energy to this space. It's an energetic gift. We're decreasing the greed, hatred, and delusion in the world by so much. I remember recently being at the ceremony at um, the Forest Refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts. We did a 10-year anniversary blessing ceremony with Ajahn Punadamo, Ainimala and myself and Ajahn Punadamo. And Joseph gave us a statistic that in the 10 years since the Forest Refuge was established, there were... Oh, was it 84,000 days? Something unbelievable of yogi practice in that center. Or 84,000 hours, it doesn't matter. It was in... (laughs) My memory is like this. It was astounding how much practice had been cultivated and how much effort how much faith, how much wisdom, how, much, how many moments of joy and sublime peace, how many moments of unconditional compassion, unconditional metta had been experienced in that space. How much mudita for others, how much upeka, how many moments of nibbana had been realized in that space. What we're doing here is much bigger than our little stories. And after all, the stories are part of the fabric of our hindrances. And we, we really need to renounce them. They may be interesting. It's not that they're not interesting. But in this particular work that we have to do, we just have to set them aside and focus on clearing the path, clearing the present moment, and putting in the causes and conditions for realization of the truth. So that we don't have to go back into the world and be caught up in greed, hatred, and delusion again and again and again. We can go back to the world like warriors blazing a trail for ourselves and others. This fire of the Dhamma is illuminating. It's not fearful. That's why the fear of, of Samwega is when we know the danger of being caught up in the stories and the hindrances and the, the worldly distractions. 
that urgency gives us chanda. It's like a burning wish to complete the path. And chanda leads to virya or virya, an effort, not just an initiating effort or a sustaining effort, but it's a culminating effort that takes us to the goal. It takes us through a lifetime of practice and beyond. For as as long as it takes, we're going to do it. That's why we came. We had the privilege of finding the Dhamma, of being bitten by the Dhamma, of dedicating ourselves to the Dhamma, of sharing the merits of our practice with everyone we can bring into our hearts. And we keep going. And that vidya bears fruit. The mind does get clear. It's like when you boil a good soup. If you boil a good soup, you have to really cook it. Cook it long hours. Uh, Nutritionally, I used to be a nutritionist. (laughs) So it's... uh, Now, I'm completely interested in spiritual nutrition. We don't have any choice over what we eat. We only eat what people bring. If it comes, we eat that. That's what we eat. So there's a a tremendous faith that develops when we see the kindness coming and people bringing food for us to eat. We've never really gone hungry. We don't get what we thought is wrong thinking because we don't know what we need. What we need is what we're getting, kindness. So it's not the good soup you think you want, but this is the good soup of of a mixture of so many kinds of ideas of what people think is good for us. You're not looking for a particular flavor, a particular taste. It's just a good soup. It's been cooked with so much love and care. It's been carried many miles, sometimes winter time. People brave icy roads to bring food. And we can fill our bellies just for another day. Why? Because we love this practice. We love this teaching so much. So that amount of effort... That amount of faith, the chanda, the burning wish to complete the path because we've seen the danger of taking any other highway. It might look high, but it doesn't go anywhere. It's high for a while and then it's a low path again. But this path is the highway. So that desire, that wish, that level of intention faith, renunciation, determination, patience, understanding that these tools do help us create or walk the path. And we come to the place of culminating effort, the effort that consummates the path. I've lived through times of hunger too. It wasn't actually my belly that was hungry, it was my mind the mind on fire with greed, with thinking it should be this way, or why aren't they coming and bringing food? 
I remember that moment sitting in front of my shrine one day in New Zealand when a meal didn't show up and I had fasted the day before. So I was a little bit on edge and realizing that I didn't take these vows on condition that the Buddha would feed me or that I would get what I want. But I took them because I want to be free of wanting. I want to be free from craving for anything. That's the possibility, right mindfulness, right focusing, right unifying the factors of enlightenment towards the goal will bring us that freedom, that right release one day. Step by step, we have to be patient. We give up the world, but look what we receive. We receive so much. All of us here for these 10 days are alms mendicants. You haven't written a menu. We don't know what we're going to get. But what we receive, we receive with so much gratitude because it gives us the strength to practice. And it's given with so much love. I find it really impressive how everyone stands in Anjali and there's so many of us getting the food first, the monastics, and the Anjalis don't waver. It's a real intentional reverence. It's a beautiful gesture. We give that back to everyone with our silence, with our dedication to the practice, with our love of this practice, and giving up giving up attention to that which doesn't support this beauty. Our efforts, our devotion, are beautifying the mind, beautifying our minds. And every time we abandon unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome activities of the mind, like wanting uh, whatever kind of sense desire or even the slightest little ill wind of not liking someone or not approving of ourselves or someone else or any moment of feeling lost and hopeless. Any of that, if we abandon that, the moment we abandon it, we use that energy and turn it towards the Buddha, Buddha awakening. Dhamma, fulfilling the teachings. Sangha, sharing the blessings of noble companionship. Ennobling ourselves. Then we are really taking our proper space. The space in the heart is for that. It's not for samsara. The biggest delusion is to think that the space in this heart heart-mind, is to be illuminated by worldly things. Never. It's only to be illuminated by that renouncing worldly things and turning our minds to the truth, to the Dhamma. Into our alms bowls, sometimes there's the alms bowl is a wonderful image for receiving what comes with gratitude. 
So if we do receive some bad memories, then as soon as we know them for what they are, we can just say spiritual test and feel grateful we're getting tested. If we didn't get any tests, how would we strengthen ourselves? How would we push the envelope so that we could climb higher? This is a high road. It's a testing ground. To be real warriors, we have to be able to take the arrows, like the warrior elephant in the scriptures. The warrior elephant is the king's, the royal elephant that goes into battle. He's only worthy of being the king's elephant if he's capable of going into battle, he or she, and taking those arrows. And so it is with a warrior of the Dhamma. We are like the Buddha's disciples. We are the daughters, sons and daughters of the Buddha. Then we have to be able to take the onslaughts of the world and not be tender-footed. We have to be tough. Praise and blame. Just to stand up to it. Not with a bad heart, not with an ill will or an ill wind in the mind, but with understanding and compassion. If we can bring up a kind feeling, just by recognizing sometimes it's kamma. This is somebody who we have some kind of karmic connection with and maybe we have been very nasty to them in the past. This is the result. I remember so many times thinking, I didn't deserve that. How do I know? You know, it's kamma. Is, this is like this. But the good kamma that I can create out of that is first of all to recognize spiritual test, be grateful for it, wish that person well, rather than precipitate further bad kamma out of that or bad results from that interaction. Instead, I can purify it right then and there abandon the causes and conditions for any ill will to arise in my heart and proceed with developing the Brahma-viharas for myself and others. To take those tests with a, a sense of gratitude, not blaming the conditions. If we stop looking to the world for our happiness, then we begin to look to ourselves, to the path, to the Dhamma, for our happiness. In the same way, we stop blaming the world for our suffering. And we start taking responsibility for it. What's the result of that? The suffering, we see that it arises right here in our minds and we can purify it right here in our minds. And that's how we develop the Noble Eightfold Path, the first noble truth. Where is the Dukkha? Here, what's the origin? Craving, ignorance. What is the cessation? Satipanya. Faith, energy, mindfulness, concentrated, determined, focused, unifying the factors of enlightenment in the mind and wisdom, discernment. Five faculties, like our five gears, 
and we drive our Dhamma vehicle. That's the Eightfold Noble Path. The Four Noble Truths arising within us. We can't get them out of the world, but we're in the world developing that. And the Buddha told us that this can be done in this realm of a mixture of suffering and non-suffering. Yes, we need those tests. We need to walk through fire. But we have a fire within us that's bigger than that, brighter than that. It will light our way. It is lighting our way. It is the way. Thank you so much for your attention. Uh-huh.